Hi friend, Katie here with the Hustle Humbly community updates for March. Our live this month will be on March 26th and will be our quarter one book club covering the 12 week year. We're really excited to go over this book with everyone. If you read it, you can join the conversation. And even if you don't read it, we hope you'll join us for the Hustle Humbly Cliff Notes and our good overview and takeaway of what we loved about the book, the 12 week year. Other reminders for the community group are to make sure you're on the referral list as well as the military referral list if you serve a military community. Our final reminder is that we have a podcast search feature. It is a really cool feature of the community where you can go in and find a previous episode or episodes that cover a certain topic you're looking for. So if you can't remember where you heard us talk about a certain wording for a letter or how we handled a situation, you can use that podcast search feature to find out exactly what you need. If you're a member of community, you'll have all of this in your monthly newsletter, as well as you can find it on your dashboard. And if you're not a member of community, please feel free to join us. You can learn more at hustlehumblypodcast.com slash membership. Hey y'all, it's Alyssa. During this episode with title attorney Nikki Beeson, we discuss the dangers of wire fraud and other real estate scams. We have created another email template for you to send to your clients to better serve them. You can get this template for free right now at hustlehumblypodcast.com slash wirefraud. By the way, if you are an email template owner, you will automatically receive this template in your course. Check the show notes for the link. But a lot of people think six inches are very important. (laughs) Right, right. I always sign my emails, have a great day. Yeah. These people did not. Right. Right. I would never do that. I would and then someone will call and say, you never responded to my email. No, it was flagged. <laughs> Your attachment looks sketchy. Yeah. I did not open it. <laughs> you are so smart. You do not need to be doing this. There is a better way. And he hung up on me. <laughs> Hi, y'all. Welcome to Hustle Humbly. It's Alyssa and Katie, and we are two top producing realtors in the Baton Rouge market. We work for two different companies where we should be competitors, but we have chosen community over competition. The goal of our podcast is to encourage you to find your own way in business. So stop comparing yourself and start embracing your strengths. Hi, Alyssa. Hey, Katie. It's episode 190. Wow. Today we have someone in our little fancy studio. (laughs) This is Nikki Beeson. And Nikki, will you tell us who you are and what you do? Yes, I would love to. First, thank you so much for having me today. It is a pleasure and an honor to be invited here. Um, My name is Nikki Beeson. I am a closing and title attorney with Commerce Title and Abstract Company. I have been there for over 21 years, and um, this is what I do exclusively and what I have done exclusively for the last 21 years. Wow. I, I mean, didn't realize it was that that's long. That's a long time. Yes, I know. A lifetime. <laughs> and Commerce has been open for 40. Is that right? It is our 40th anniversary year wow. this year. That's right. Um, in October. So we're super excited Holy to have smokes. lasted this long, especially yeah. in some bad markets recently and right. in the past. You're so. the most consistent title office, I think, in our market. Like when I started 17 years ago, you were there and you're, I mean, like, I think that it's just like a staple. If some, someone mm-hmm. is looking for title work, they're like, oh, you must go to commerce. Right. Thank you. I would you. agree with that. That's so a huge welcome. compliment from both of you. I very much appreciate it. I mean, it. I wouldn't, that's my, like, we are very careful about having local vendors on the show because we don't want to hurt anyone's feelings or anyone to feel left out. But the truth of the matter is if I need help, I'm going to contact you. Mm-hmm. So if I'm going to get to choose where I'm closing, it's going to be your office. And I'm okay with saying that because I know that you're so consistent and good at what you do. I appreciate that, but I do have to say there are some good title companies. There are. <laughs> there there are title are companies in this town clo- with some nice people. For sure. I've closed at many of them, but if I'm choosing, you know, and yeah. I we've told our listeners before, it's important to have a relationship with your title attorney so that when you have these little quick questions that you need to have answers, there's someone there that is willing to support you because you have kind of a symbiotic relationship. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to dig in? Tell us tell us your feelings. So when I started in real estate, Nikki was one of the first ones that reached out to me. Uh-huh. Um, her office is next to my office. And so a lot the geography of works. the geography <laughs> works, which is nice and helpful, of course. Uh-huh. And I just felt like I was quickly understanding the importance of having a reputable title company with title. 
there's not a problem until there's a problem. Right. That is very true. And it wasn't until you start encountering situations where you realize the importance of a title company and what they can do and what they're willing to do. And and I mean, we'll get into this. I've definitely had situations that have been saved. For sure. Um, And so it, it... it made me realize that, you know, they're not all created equal and also the relationship is very important. Yeah. So. Yep. Okay. Well, let's just dive right in. <laughs> Nikki, what are some of the most common title challenges in order to get to closing? And I want to preface this by saying, obviously, we're in Louisiana. You work within the bounds of Louisiana law. It's different everywhere, I would assume. But I would think some of these challenges kind of come up over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, that's correct. And every year, with the exception of the COVID years for the last 10 years or so, um, I've attended the American Land Title Association Conference, which has title companies and title attorneys from all over the U.S. attending. Mm. And uh, my, uh, what you just said has been confirmed. Everyone in the country has the same problems. Yeah. Um, and the biggest challenge or obstacle that we face is probably the same one that you face. It's the people, the people, and the people. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> For sure. Right. It's, you know, the emotions that come with it. It's that they're busy. Um, it's gathering information and them either not having it handy or it's packed or they're trying to get utilities set up and kids registered in a new school mm-hmm. and think that this is this is not the fun part of it. The fun part of it is finding the house and moving in. Right. Um, so, you know, you don't want to really be bothered with the information gathering. And then also in this day and age, people are, you know, a little bit leery about giving you that private data that mm-hmm. we have to have. Yeah. Um, so that's a challenge, too. Um, the next challenge with the people is the scheduling. I mean, you know, to get that many people in Louisiana. In the same room. Yes. <laughs> we, what we call, we wet fund. Um, so we fund on the day that everyone signs and closes. Everyone appears at the same time and in the same place, which is not the case in all states. Right. Mm-hmm. And so getting everyone there at the same time in this day and age is often a challenge. Um, it takes us a minimum of six phone calls to get a closing scheduled. Oh, wow. Sometimes twice that. Um, So, you know, it's hard to get that scheduled. And beyond the people, the payoffs and um, HOA information. Uh, Those Mm -hmm. are the biggest challenges. Mm -hmm. Um, Getting people to cooperate, payoffs and HOA information. Right. Oh, God. So if a if a subdivision has an HOA, now, you know, there's some that are voluntary and mm-hmm. some that are required. Mm-hmm. You can see that on your end if there is a HOA associated with this address. So what I can see is that there are restrictions recorded in the conveyance records indicating that a homeowners association was created. Um, and for your older subdivisions, you're going to find a lot of times that they were voluntary or that there never was an HOA. Right. Um, that doesn't mean one can't be created later, but it's hard because you have to have 100% of the residents <gasps> if you don't do it prior to the development. Wow. Oh. Agree to it. So um, I can tell that there <laughs> is an HOA. I can tell that there are restrictions. However, I do not know how much the dues are. Um, they may set them initially when they create the restrictions, but then over time- they change. The, Yes, the board of directors Mm -hmm. and the membership can vote to increase or decrease those dues over time. So that is something that is not publicly available. That is something we have to get from the HOA representative. Mm -hmm. And there is no public database for the HOAs. What happens if the HOA never responds to you? Well, that has happened. <laughs> yeah, what do you, what do, you do? <laughs> um, that has happened. And in that case, what we do is we have to take the word of the seller and we have to put the buyer on notice that we were not able to do this. Usually we will enlist the seller's help and say, Mr. Seller, we're going to need you to get something. Like from a the knock H- on Susie's right, door who runs right. the HOA. The biggest problem is when it's managed by someone else. the members and not managed well, by Right, a company. Then they can, do they just let it go sometimes? Mm-hmm. Sometimes they do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm. That's terrible. Very interesting. <laughs> right. Um, so it's, yeah, yeah, it's a wing and a prayer with the HOA. It really is. Um, you know, so that's why we have that seller affidavit. I don't know if y'all have ever noticed that where the seller swears that he doesn't have anything that's due and owing. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so that in the event that something happens later on. Okay. He, well, let's take it there. If he had something due and owing that was far enough 
I guess, back where they had actually filed a lien, you can see that. Yes. If okay. a lien were recorded, I could see that. But we are also obligated to collect any past due mm-hmm. dues yep. or fees um, as long as we know what they are and the HOA advises of, yeah. advises of what they are. Hmm. I mean, have you ever collected the money for a lien and not been able to find who to give it to? No, because we would need to know the amount of the lien. And generally, if they get to the point where they file a lien, most of the time they have an attorney who assists them. Okay, got it. Interesting. It is. I mean, it's a lot of information to collect from your buyers and sellers, and they are sometimes reluctant. I've had a seller call me very angry because the title attorney or title office reached out and said, I need your social security number. And they were like, why are these people who we don't know calling us and asking (laughs) us this question? And then I had to add it to the email template. Mm -hmm. The title office is going to reach out to you. They need your Mm -hmm. personal information, including your social security number. Like, it's almost like you have to give people fair warning. But from your end, you're just doing your job. And they're like, no. (laughs) And on that note, a few... A a lot of episodes ago. We'll have to look it up. We did an episode on how to be a good co-op agent. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. How to be the agent that people want to work with. And we reached out. You were one of the people we reached out to. We reached out to other agents, title, lender, Mm -hmm. to say, what can we do to make your job easier? That would be a really good episode for our listeners to go back and listen to. And I think we even have that template of what the title company Mm -hmm. said because it's really up to us as the agents to do our due diligence right. to be able to give you the complete information. Yeah. So I like to copy my clients on the email to commerce mm-hmm. and make that introduction. Right. Let them know what will be asked of them. Let them know that we need HOA information. So anything we can do to make your job easier also. Warning them about the call or the email for that personal information is huge because then they know to expect it. Um, and even sometimes then they'll say, I'd rather call you back with it or I'd rather give it to you at closing. Right. And for some things that's, you know, they can always call back. If they yeah. want to Google our phone number and make sure they're talking to the right person, um, there are safeguards they can take if yeah. they're uncomfortable. To make it more safe. Right. Okay, mm. but can you wait until closing to give your social security number? It depends. So if I have to distinguish judgments mm-hmm. and I need that information, then no, I need it in advance. Okay, but you can do, run the judgments off of just a name? Yes. Okay. But if there are no judgments to distinguish, then I really can wait till closing to get their social security Okay, number. tell our friends what judgments to distinguish means. Okay. <laughs> so let's just say that your seller's name is John Smith. Okay. Um, John Smith is a very common name. And so what's going to happen is when my title work is run, I may have a whole page of judgments and liens against John Smith, Johnny Smith, um, and any variation you can possibly think of. Johnny with a Y, Johnny with an IE. Mm -hmm. And so then I'm going to have to go through every one of these and figure out, is this John Smith the same person as John Smith who owns this house and is selling it? Right. And if it's not, then I can disregard it. Um, as long as there's some data on which I can, you know, validly disregard it. If it is the same person, then I have to move forward with curative work to get this judgment paid off and canceled. Um, So common names are really problematic. But if you have an unusual name, that's super easy. So I Mm -hmm. could probably wait to get a social security number till closing in that instance, but not for a John Smith. Okay, that makes sense. You're running basically a title search on the house and both the buyer and the seller? I'm running the seller. In Louisiana, our um, clerk of court indices are indexed by vendor and vendee. So that means by the seller and by the buyer. There is no index based on the property itself. Okay. okay? Mm -hmm. So in some states, there is. Here, there isn't. Okay. So I'm always running only John Smith. And I might find 20 John Smiths that own 20 different properties. And so I have to verify that the one who's selling this property is the right one. Um, But we only index by vendor. It's interesting. So just to kind of go back to the basics for a second, when you get a new file, and let's pretend it's a nice, clean, easy one, there are no judgments or liens, what are the steps that y'all take to get to the closing table once you receive a purchase agreement? So once we receive a purchase agreement, uh, the first, the information gathering begins. And so an escrow assistant will call both the buyer and the seller, and they'll ask for social security number, uh, marital status, which is something we need in Louisiana that not everyone needs to have because Mm -hmm. we're a community property state. Um, They may ask for loan payoff information, um, 
anything that it, it's we're going to need in order to get this to closing, to, to prepare our active sale and to distinguish any judgments. Um, simultaneously, the abstract is being ordered. Once the abstract is prepared by the abstractor, which is just a list of all documents found in the conveyance records and the mortgage records relating to the buyer and the seller mm. and this particular piece of property, that is compiled and that is sent to the title examiner, which in Louisiana is an attorney. Uh, we examine that title and then we decide what, if anything, needs to be done in order to cure it and make it valid for resale. From that point, a title commitment is issued telling the lender what we have to do to make the title good. And then we prepare the sale documents and then the lender sends us their documents. We get all of those prepared and compiled and that's when we sit down and actually close. Okay. And in one of my situations that I had where I realized how important the title company is, and this is where I learned a lot about title insurance. I had a listing that was under contract. It was a good friend of mine's house and we had a buyer and everything was going good. And then the title company that the buyer had chosen notified me that they found a defect in title from three owners prior where one heir three owners ago never signed. Mm -hmm. So technically this person out there had a small interest and every time it closed since then, nobody ever caught it. Mm -hmm. It just made it through. And then this title company found it and flagged it. Mm -hmm. Apparently when my friend bought her house, she did not have title insurance. And when I asked her about it, she was like, I don't even know what that is. Mm -hmm. So I guess at some point it was waived without her understanding when she bought, you know, I know you see it at the closing table all the time. People say, do I really need this title insurance? Why is it on here? It costs money. Yeah. And you know, it's, you don't need it until you need it. And then you really need it. Well, this title company would not close it. And so I called you and you ran it through y'all's underwriting system and you had a title insurance company that would do it. And that was really eye-opening to me right. because I never understood that it was different and that different title companies work with different title insurance companies. Is that correct? That's right. It's not It's not a simple answer to this question. Okay. <laughs> okay. okay. Well, give us the complicated <laughs> answer. Yes. So, um, in Louisiana, our mandated contract provides that the seller give merchantable title to the buyer. And merchantable title means that that title is clean and free of any defects and not suggestive of any litigation. Okay. Um, and so if there is a legal problem, it, we all know there's a legal problem and it's mm -hmm. not merchantable. Mm -hmm. um, and in some instances, legal problems resolve themselves with time. And in some instances, they don't. Um, but what title insurance does is it allows you in certain instances to issue insurable title as opposed to merchantable title, mm. which means that title has some defect that may or may not resolve itself in time. But the title insurer feels like the risk is so low or the amount of the risk is so low that they are willing to insure that title despite that it's not in spite of the fact that it's okay. not merchantable. Okay. okay. So in that instance, um, we have to get approval from the title insurance underwriter to do so. Um, they will apply whatever their standards are. And title insurance companies are like other people. Some of them are more conservative than others. Some are more comfortable with certain risks than others. And so they will decide whether that risk is something that they are willing to insure. Mm. So in that case, what will normally happen is we'll reach out to the buyer and say, Mr. Buyer, we cannot provide you with merchantable title in this situation um, at this time. And so your option is to either not proceed with this closing or to proceed with insurable title. And, you know, here are the potential risks and consequences of doing that. And are you comfortable? And in my experience, I've only had one time where someone has said, I'm not comfortable like, with no. that. Mm, right. Okay. Um, so most of the time they are comfortable with insured title. Um, so in that instance, that's what happened is that, the issue was so far back mm -hmm. and there was some evidence of record. It just wasn't really exactly right. Um, and let me mention that there are some gray areas in yeah. the law too. So yeah. it's not necessarily um, black and white every single time. And then that's when you opt to go with insured title. If you either cannot fix it 
or it's a gray area that one person is comfortable with and another is not. Interesting. Okay. We have to back up now. Okay. <laughs> Can you give me the basic definition of what title insurance is and what it does? Because I know a lot of times at closing, the buyer will look over to their agent and say, well, what is this? Mm -hmm. And sometimes the title, uh, you know, representative steps in and explains, sometimes they're not even in the room. Like, can you just give us the explanation of what title insurance is. And what what do, we yeah, what, what do we say? What do we say? Okay. <laughs> yes. so, I, may I start with a historical explanation? Yeah, because I please. think it's very important. So, um, you know, in the old days when you didn't have um, multinational banks, when you went to your local credit union and you got a mortgage, um, your local savings and loan, that savings and loan did business with an attorney or a title company that they felt comfortable with their work product. Um, they felt comfortable with their competence. And so the attorney would just give a title opinion saying, yes, it's good. Go ahead and issue your mortgage. Let's close. Well, when the SNLs all crashed, okay, and you started having lenders, multinational lenders from all over the world, Chase Bank does not know who Nikki Beeson is. Right. They are not familiar with my work practices or my work standards. Um, and there's no like ratings for us or anything for them to be able to tell whether or not I do good work and I'm competent. Okay. So that's when title insurance really was created and started to take some prominence because you had a big company with money behind it to pay for any losses that Chase or Wells Fargo might incur as a result of them using a title attorney or title company that mm -hmm. made a mistake or didn't exactly have the competence or the skill to do the work properly. Okay. So title insurance basically is there to protect parties, whether that be the lender or the owner, from any defects that may exist in the title to that property, losses sustained as a result of defects in the title to that property. Mm, okay. um, and, you know, mostly what it does, in my opinion, is it, it does cover those losses and it's there to cover those losses. But what it does behind the scenes that most people never realize because we don't call people to tell them is that it keeps property in the chain of commerce without stopping to fix a problem most mm, of the time. Okay. So the most common issue we have is we might have a mortgage that's um, 26 years old. And so in Louisiana, a 30-year mortgage would prescribe, meaning it has no more legal effect in 36 years, but we're only mm. at 26, okay? And maybe the property has been sold two or three times since, and this mortgage has never been canceled. The mortgage company doesn't exist. The title company who would have paid it off doesn't exist. So what are you going to do? I mean, this, this is going to take months or years to fix with litigation. So the title insurance company will come in and say, okay, well, it has been uh, 26 years. This property was sold 10 years ago. We've got 16 years where no foreclosure was filed. No one has complained about a balance due and owing. We've only got a few more years while it has legal effect. We are comfortable insuring this risk. Yes, go ahead, close it, keep this property in commerce. And then 10 years later, the problem just resolves itself and goes away. So it uh. keeps property in commerce, with, especially when with these things that are time sensitive, where the problem is going to resolve itself with some time. It just helps you move on quicker without the cost of litigation is what it does on a daily basis. But we've also had issues with claims where it's come in to, you know, deal with the loss. Okay. So tell us some of the, what are some of the defects that title insurance is covering? Like give us some exa real life examples. Okay. Um, so I had one maybe about two years ago that we closed probably about 12 years ago. Um, and this particular buyer was an investor who bought properties on a very regular basis. And he had this property he bought where the tenants noted, uh, called him and said, we have received notice from someone saying that we're not to direct our rent to you anymore, that you are not the rightful owner of the property, that they are. Mm. And so I said, well, you know, let me just run the title mm -hmm. back and see if I can find what they're talking about. And I ran it back and there was nothing weird or unusual. Everything seemed above board. So I called him back and said, I'm going to need them to send me that letter. Um, I need to find out what the basis for this claim is. Maybe it's total fraud, but mm -hmm. I need to know. And so when he sent me the letter... The um, people who claimed ownership claimed that their mother couldn't possibly have sold this property 
because she was already deceased yeah. at the time that the documents were signed. Oh. So there was a forgery in the chain of title. And um, there really was? And there really was. <gasps> there really was a forgery in the chain of title. Um, and wow. so, you know, and for something like that to happen, it's a little bit unusual here because of our notary system and our witness requirements and stuff like that. You have to have a lot of people colluding. But in other states, that is not the case. Oh. Um, there are less formal requirements. So it's a little bit unusual for us to see a total forgery because you have to have a notary or someone posing as a notary, the seller, and then witnesses all colluding in this fraud. Mm. Um, and that's what happened there. So did you figure out who was the one that actually fraudulently signed? The people trying to collect the rent now? So, well, n- the people trying to collect the rent now claim that they still owned it. It oh, could right, not have been Because it was their mother. Yes. Their mother. Yes. Okay, yes. right. So what we did was I assisted this seller with making a title insurance claim, and then they investigate to figure out mm-hmm. what happened and if it was really a forgery, which it was. And in that instance, they bought the house back from him. The title insurance. Yes. Yes. How do they figure out what value to pay him? Um, So the way title insurance works is there's a couple of different policies. There's the regular policy, which we at Commerce Title do not sell. And most of the title companies in Baton Rouge do not sell. Most everyone sells the advance policy. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, There's only one company I know of that does not sell the advance policy. If you ask them, I'm sure they will. But it's a good thing to ask. With the advance policy, your coverage is for the amount of the sale, and then it will graduate up to 50% of the purchase price paid. Mm-hmm. So um, if he paid $20,000 for this property, well, he could get a maximum of thirty. Okay. dollars um, But only the advance policy does that. The regular mm-hmm. policy, you are limited to the amount of the purchase price at the time of the purchase. Mm. Okay. So like if you've gotten equity, you're, you wouldn't get any of that back. Right. And so another thing I like to tell people about title insurance, because inevitably a sophisticated party will say, well, you have E&O insurance. Um, and of course, I do have E&O insurance. But a fraud, a forgery in the chain of title is not an error or an omission because I could not have known that. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the claims that you see are not errors and omissions because they're not negligence. They're not something that you would have known. Also in Louisiana, we have a three-year statute of limitations, a preemptive statute for attorneys. So most people don't find a problem until they go to sell or refinance. Um, so if they buy the house and they don't do anything for seven years, well, even if it's negligence on the part of the attorney, that claim is going to have expired. So that's the benefit of the title insurance is that you have also, what if that title attorney doesn't have any money to pay you? What if they don't have E&O coverage? What if it's not enough? You know, so that's what the title insurance is there for us to cover things that wouldn't be covered. The coverage has expired. There's not enough coverage. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of different reasons to buy it. So one of the questions I was going to ask, but now I'm thinking it may not what I was thinking wasn't correct was, <clears throat> are there certain types of property that are more prone to have issues, such as properties in older parts of town? But then it sounds like it's not really the property as much as it is just its history of owners. That's where the messiness can occur more. It's both. Okay. It's both. No, you were, you were right with your first thought. Um, there are properties that are more prone to issues. One is foreclosures. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Foreclosures are more prone to issues because um, if someone wasn't paying their mortgage, there are other bills that maybe they weren't paying, mm. um, other judgments that could come up and, you know, Depending on how that recordation occurs, it could prime a mortgage. It could be recorded um, at a time that affects the foreclosure. It could be recorded in a slightly different name and not picked up during the foreclosure process. So foreclosures are certainly, and also you have a lot of constitutional requirements and mm. service requirements for foreclosures. If those aren't met, that could affect the title. Um, the other issue is successions. So our mm. uh, probate, if you're right. outside of Louisiana, those those can be problematic, too, for a couple of reasons. One, again, you have procedures that have to be followed. And if those are not followed, then that can create a defect. Two, you can have collusion and missing heirs, which has happened. Um, you have an estranged sibling and, you know, the two here decide they don't want to have to deal with the third one in California. And so they just neglect to mention that there is a third one. Mm. Um, things like that have happened and do happen sometimes. So successions are more prone to problems also. Um, But older parts of town, a lot of times you have weird alleyways and Mm -hmm. weird servitudes that you don't have 
since we have planning and zoning ordinances and, you know, new subdivisions where maps have to be recorded. So there's a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, while we're on that, alleys and things like that, title insurance also can get involved when there is a, a boundary dispute, right? Yes. So in Louisiana, we don't have to have a survey done to, to do a closing, but I think in other states they do, but Title insurance, how does it come into play if like the fence is in the wrong mm-hmm. place? So there is survey coverage on the advanced owner's policy. Um, there is not survey coverage mm-hmm. on the regular policy. Um, survey coverage without having to have a survey done. And let me preface, this is for residential, for commercial, that's a whole different world. Um, but I recently had a really terrible survey issue situation um, out in Ascension where people bought this property, I don't know, almost 10 years ago. And there was a pool house and a pool that was all built when they purchased it. And as it turns out, and I never would have found this 10 years ago when they purchased, but the technology has gotten much better with the assessor's office. And so now we're able to look at the assessed property and and see where it sits. And so when we looked at that, we could see that the pool house and about 50% of the pool were built on the HOA property and not (gasps) within the lot. Mm. Wow. Um, And right on top of a parish drainage servitude. And they did not have the advanced policy. There was no survey coverage. Um, There is a deductible for the survey claims. And I think it's like, don't quote me on this. I think it's $5,000. So it can be substantial. Um, But if you have a big survey issue with ownership involved like this one, Mm -hmm. um, $5,000 might be a drop in the bucket. Hey y'all, Katie here. In episode 188, we cover all of the tasks you do in your business and how often you do them. We share the full task frequency list in Time Management for Agents 101. Right now, you can get Time Management for Agents 101 free when you purchase the database course before March 31st. You can find that at thedatabasecourse.com or at hustlehumblypodcast.com slash courses. So even if you have insurance, what does the title insurance do when there is a pool mm-hmm. on property that is not yours? How does that resolve? Well, so the goal of the title insurance is to either cure the defect or make that party whole again. So it's either to buy the house back or buy the land that the excess that the encroachment is on. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a lot of different ways to make a person whole. And so sometimes it's making them whole in a way that they don't want to be made whole. (laughs) Right. (laughs) They don't get to decide. The title insurance company gets to decide how to make them whole. But there's a lot of ways to skin that cat. Right. Mm-mm-mm-mm. I've had one like that in Ascension. Now that you, when you started saying that, I'm like, was it mine? But it wasn't. <laughs> but with the pool and there was a big vacant lot behind it, but things were not really where they were supposed mm-hmm. to be. It ends up being two lots instead of one or like a house that straddles two lots. I mean, that's pretty common. It right? is. It is. And so, you know, up until recently where we could look at the assessor's website and see because of all the GIS maps, see the improvements. And we have made that part of our routine title work. Um, before that, I could not tell if a house straddled a line right. or straddled mm-hmm. a lot. Now we can. Yeah. Hmm. I've started including in my email template on new contracts for buyers that you may want to think about a survey. If you have any questions or concerns, this is up to you. It's not required because I do think, especially with fencing Mm -hmm. and things like that, I've, I've been encountering more situations where it's unclear. And the mm-hmm. only way to really know mm-hmm. is to have a survey. And I just want it on record somewhere that I said. That you suggested it. I suggested it. It's up to you, but mm-hmm. you may want to think about it. There are a few agents who sell exclusively in the older parts of town, like Spanish Town, mm-hmm. where they will require their buyers to get a survey. Oh. Mm-hmm. That's okay. where most of my mm-hmm. issues have been. Oh, in the oldest part of town. When the f- Sometimes you have three layers of fences mm-hmm. because, you know, this neighbor put up a fence and they wanted this kind of fence on this side. And you just don't know where, where is. everything is. Mm-hmm. And it's you don't know until you get a survey. And you and I might not think six inches are important, but a lot of people think six inches are very important. <laughs> right. Right. That is very true. <laughs> so true. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's move on to the scary, scary topic of wire fraud. Mm. Okay. This 
It's the big bold letters, the other color, like every title office you get now says, no, be aware. Mm -hmm. Realtors are having them sign things. Yes. Tell us about wire fraud. What is happening? How often is this really occurring? So um, I, I Googled yesterday to do some research nationwide. It is a topic that comes up over and over again right. at all of our industry conferences. Um, and actually, I found a NORA statistic. Mm-hmm. Um, there was $6.9 billion in losses in 2021. <gasps> That's and, a lot of money. Uh, and an average of 2,300 complaints daily. Daily? Oh, daily. my gosh. It has occurred in every state of the union and is classified by the FBI as a major threat to our economy. Mm, I literally Every just got single chills. state. I know. Like, it's so disturbing. It's very disturbing. Mm. And it's also one of those things where, you know, you hear about it all the time. And then you just kind of think it, it almost becomes like that'll never happen to me. Right. It almost mm-hmm. becomes normalized, like, okay, watch out for wire fraud. And then you hear about the devastating effects of someone that it happened to and it becomes real. Tell us what happens. Okay. So um, normally what happens in this case or what has been happening, it, it changes daily. They're getting better and better. As you find a way to prevent it, they find a way to do something new. Um, but a criminal actor will basically um, hack into an email and then they will lie in wait. They will watch those emails. And I think that the last statistic I got at our um, American Land Title Association conference is that they may watch for like 160 days before Whoa. they actually are able to target something. Wow. Once they are at a point where they can target something, they will insert themselves into that process and start emailing back and forth as if they are a party to the transaction, either the realtor or the title company or the lender or whomever. Um, and so the uh, the person that's part of your transaction thinks they are interacting with a part another party to their transaction when in fact they are not. Mm-hmm. It's so happened sneaky. to me while I was in your office, mm-hmm. actually. And, you know, someone from the office came and was like, Katie, come out into the hall. And I'm like, they're like, did you send this email? I'm like, no. And do you, but you could tell. But also, I'm like, I always sign my emails. Have a great day. Yeah. <laughs> These people did not. Right. Right. I would never do that. I would never do this. But, you know, it's really great to have something like that that, you know, distinguishes you. Right. I'm like, this is not from me. But have you had people, have you caught them like bef- like it's about to happen and yes. then stopped it? Yes. T- it happens on a fairly, fairly regular basis, actually. Okay. Um, and so first I want to say there's a big stigma surrounding this. Okay. Nobody wants to talk about it. Nobody mm-hmm. wants to talk about we got caught in this because then they're embarrassed and right. they feel like they've done something they wrong. failed. And, and maybe they have and maybe they haven't depending right. on the circumstances. But until we start talking about it as an industry and we start sharing our stories, right. it's going to be hard for us for it to get to better. To stop. Right. Um, Because people don't believe it's really happening. They don't. Okay. They don't. And so a a big problem that we have is we have all these processes in place, but they only work if everybody adheres to them. Mm. And within our office, we adhere to them because we are terrified of, you know, assisting and losing someone's money. But buyers and sellers don't know. They don't take it seriously. They don't feel like they have the time. They feel like we're wasting their time. And so they will do things that they probably shouldn't do that are against the policies. And then that's when these things happen. Okay. Um, Give us an example of something that a buyer or seller would do against the policy. Okay. So I'll give you an example of an actual loss that happened. Um, in our office. Uh, first of all, our first one was in 2015, before we even Whoa. knew that this existed. Okay. So that was um, your first sighting. That was our first sighting and our first actual loss. Because okay. we in 2015, nobody knew that this was happening. Right. Okay. Um, the next one happened in 2017. And by that time, we had processes in place. Sure. Um, and our processes included emailing the person and telling them, uh, we are going to email you these wiring instructions to the buyer. We're going to email you our wiring instructions and we're going to immediately follow up with a call to this number that you and I have been speaking on. And we are going to confirm that what you received in your email matches what we sent from our email. Mm. Okay. Okay. And so the first time this happened, um, it was a very busy man and he said he didn't have time for all this nonsense. And (laughs) we were insistent that we do this. And he complied. And so we did the call back. We confirmed he received what we sent. And we said, you know, we will not change these. This is where your money is to go. 
Next thing we know, and we were dealing with his office email, which was encrypted. And so that's great when you're dealing with someone else, right. your encrypted email and someone else's encrypted email. But in the meantime, he decided he was too busy for this and that his wife needed to take care of it. So she called, she had a Gmail account, um, and we went through the same process with her and everything was fine. But then they received another email after the first two emails and after the first two telephone conversations. And when they went to the bank, instead of looking at it, they just opened it and showed it to the teller. Mm. So the money uh, was sent to a bank that was not our escrow account holding bank. Um, And about a day later, he happened to call and confirm. And we said, we don't have your wire. When did you send it? And he said, yesterday about noon. And it was maybe three o'clock the next day. And we said, something is wrong. You need to stop right now and call your bank and find out where this wire went. Mm -hmm. Um, And he did. He called his bank and it had gone to USAA. We do not bank at USAA. And so um, immediately it was Chase and Chase submitted, requested that the wire be refunded, which if you do it within a certain amount of time, minutes or hours, you might be able to get it back. This was not minutes or hours. It was more than 24 hours. So at that point, they have to submit a fraud report to the other bank and to the FBI. There has to be some investigation that happens. Mm. And then after the investigation, if it's determined that it's fraud, the money comes back. Um, USAA happened to have some pretty good policies in place. And they had flagged this because the little lady, it involved a money mule. So it didn't go directly to the criminal. It okay. went to an unwitting money mule. I've never even heard this Me term neither. Me okay. neither. Go. So basically, they dupe someone into thinking that they're getting this money, but they're only getting part of it. And then they have to send the rest of it on via some other way to the criminal actor, who they don't think is criminal. They Think it's, mm-hmm. it's, right. They think it's like their long lost uncle. Yes. Okay. Yes. Or some sort of scam, job scam, love scam. There's there's a lot of different ones. Oh my. And so the lady went to the bank. It was half a million dollars. And she had never had more than $5,000 in this account for the 30 years she'd had this account. And so they flagged it as unusual and they only gave her $12,000 and told her that she would have to wait 48 hours for the rest of it to clear. And so within that 48 hours, the fraud report came in Mm. Mm -hmm. um, and they refused to disperse it and eventually sent it back to Chase. And our client did get all his money back except for that $12,000. Oh, wow. Um, So he lost $12,000. He lost $12,000 and he considered himself lucky to only have lost $12,000. Right. He definitely Um, should. He he acknowledged responsibility in it and um, it, it, it worked out as well as it could have under those circumstances. But it was a frightening two days. (laughs) So one thing that you mentioned is the email accounts. Mm -hmm. There are so many agents out there that are nervous about having their professional email account with a broker in case they switch companies Mm -hmm. or whatever. They want to brand themselves. So our office requires us to use the office email because of insurance. Mm -hmm. It can void the insurance that they have on us if we use a personal email account. Mm -hmm. So... What did you mean by encrypted and what kind of email accounts? The reason that your office requires you to use your office email and insurance is void without it is for this reason. Okay. So your Gmails, your Yahoo's, those are much more susceptible than a company email where you have someone encrypting partially or totally. And so agents who are using those Gmails are putting themselves at risk. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they really are because those are much more hackable than your company accounts. And encrypting just means checking, verifying. Encrypting can mean a lot of different things. So for us, when we get an email from someone that we've never received an email from before, we get a flag. Mm -hmm. Um, When we get an email that looks suspicious for any reason, we get a flag. And there are all these identifying things that will flag us that there's something unusual about it. Mm -hmm. Um, We get tons of phishing emails. And I mean, (laughs) the layers of security (laughs) that we have to pay for to make sure that we're avoiding this. And a lot of times, you know, 
I'll make the mistake of deleting an email because I don't want to take the risk. And then someone will call and say, you never responded to my email. No, it was flagged. <laughs> Your attachment looks sketchy. Yeah. I did not open it. No. <laughs> yes. right. And I guess I would rather err in that direction mm-hmm. than in the opposite. But sometimes if I get an email from someone I know and it looks fishy, I'll delete it and then call them and say, hey, I just want to make sure, did you send that? But if it's somebody you don't know, that's where the problem comes in. Um, so most of your company email, they probably have some security features like mm-hmm. that that are going on behind the scenes that you may not even know about. I get some notes and things like that through, it'll say, just want to make sure you understand you're sending this to someone mm-hmm. outside of your organization yes. or mm-hmm. that doesn't match anything that you've ever sent before. So I do get little notes in my email when I'm sending things, usually if I have an attachment. Your company, because it's a big company and they understand the risk, they probably do something like we do. They probably employ someone to send fake phishing emails to see which one of your people are going to open them up. They do. (laughs) I know they do. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We, like, we do that. These are the yes. problem. We do that too. That's um, a great idea. Like undercover. <laughs> it's secret, like a secret, secret shopper. shopper. Yes. Secret shopper. Yes. <gasps> what? I did oh not realize gosh. that. That's so interesting. Okay. Wait. I had a question about the wire fraud and now it's leaving me. Okay. Well, how can we avoid wire fraud? Um, so there's as a, a f- consumer really as well. Like what can an agent do? What should the consumer do? It all boils down to being very careful um, and to basically verifying and re-verifying before you send any money to anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so what I encourage people to do is, first of all, if you work with a title company on a regular basis, ask them who, what bank their escrow account is. Oh, okay. okay. Mm-hmm. And so if you know that you know, Commerce Title, our escrow accounts are with Red River Bank and Investor Bank. And your client says, oh, I got this email from Commerce to send some, you know, my money to Capital One. You're going to know that is not, that is totally wrong. Um, And so, you know, for them to just confirm with a number that they have independently verified. So as a consumer, let's say you're wiring money to someone. I just wired money for a vacation. And I was a nervous Nelly to do mm-hmm. that. I yeah. confirmed and reconfirmed and Googled and found Forbes <laughs> articles. And, you know, I was very <laughs> yeah. sensitive to it. Um, but if you independently verify a number, if you Google somebody's number, you never want to use the number on the email they give you because they've gotten better. They've started to include numbers <gasps> on the email. So you can't just oh, the call phone. the email yeah, and say, call. I want to make sure right. you sent me this email no, no, no. because they're you making might be fake websites the and right. everything so you well, want to have go, six billion dollars to use yes. right they're <laughs> and they're so smart <laughs> why can't they use it for good instead of evil <laughs> i actually found myself on the phone with a hacker and realized halfway through what was happening and started being like, you are so smart. You do not need to be doing this. There is a better way. And he hung up on me. (laughs) But I was so aggravated. You need to work on your skills of persuasion there, I guess. You you lost that negotiation. I did. I did. Where is your mother? So being being wary and verifying and double checking, it never hurts to be paranoid and ask more questions and do more due diligence. That would be my suggestion for consumers and for agents and for buyers. Yeah. And sometimes the money is just gone. Most of the time, right? So in our first instance in 2015, before this was a, th- a topic, thing that right. we knew of, um, what had happened there was the we had been communicating with the seller's agent who had power of attorney for the seller. And it was someone local that we knew. And um, he had basically provided us with the loan number, provided us with all the seller's information. We had very little contact with the seller himself. Um, the agent showed up at closing with wiring instructions. We wired before we could wire the money. We got an email from the agent saying, my seller has decided he'd rather his funds go to his Capital One account than his Regions account. Mm. And we said, oh, okay. So we sent the money. <gasps> well, about two days later, the seller called and said, I still haven't received my wire. And we said, oh, well, we sent to this account. Your agent asked us to you know, change. And he said, I don't have an account there. Oh, no. And what happened in that instance was it went directly to the criminal Mm -hmm. and they immediately withdrew the money from the account and closed it. So Mm. it was gone. Um, I think that banks have gotten better about that now. Yeah. Um, They've gotten better in a couple of ways. There's also a movement to have banks match the payee on the wire with the 
with the account holder, which mm-hmm. currently does not exist. Wow. So if I'm sending money to Alyssa Jenkins, um, I can send it to Katie Caldwell's account and the bank doesn't care. They're like, whatever. Okay. Yes. That's terrible. That so, seems like safety protocol 101. Yes. Um, but they don't want to make that adjustment and that would help tremendously. Hmm. Why don't they want to make the adjustment? Because they want the money? No, because <clears throat> they say that it's too hard to police that if your account is in the name of um, Alyssa and Tanner Jenkins mm-hmm. and we just sent it to Alyssa Jenkins, it then they're going to have to send it back because it's not an exact match. Well, mm-hmm. they do that with checks. I know. That's mm. wild. Okay. My word. So, yes. If it's going directly to the fraudster, they are taking that money out immediately. Right. But if you have a money mule, some of the banks have money policies mule. in place where they can flag transactions that are outside are of the ordinary. Are money mules more common now? What is it a kind of even split? Do you even know? Like, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. I had an elderly client whose wife passed away and he was – taking it very hard and got an email. I was talking to his son about it. The son told me that they didn't realize this was going on, but after, you know, the mom passed away, his dad received an email from someone checking on him. I care about you. It was all a big scam Mm -hmm. and developed basically like an online relationship, Mm -hmm. friendship and next thing you know, he's sending money and and became a money mule. <gasps> and they had to get authorities involved. And it was just, I, I guess they just prey on the sure, vulnerable, yes, the vulnerable yes. people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I know we wanted to also ask if there was any other, it seems like as technology increases the complexity of the scams that are occurring, we've been having instances where if someone is on phone duty, they'll just get a random call that says, I own this piece of land Mm -hmm. and I need to get it listed, but I live in another state. Mm -hmm. What do we need to do? Oh, that's okay. It's just a piece of land. It's not like I have to meet you to walk through the house. They do all the paperwork electronically. Mm -hmm. And next thing you know, they've sold a piece of land that that person never even owned. Are y'all seeing things like that? Yes. And so um, a lot of this has to do also with technology and um, people not being present to sign anymore. When someone that you've never met wants to sign via a power of attorney, that's an immediate red flag for me. Okay. Um, yeah. If they were in town and you listed and their home, leave. that's that's one thing. Yeah. But if you get a call on phone duty from somebody who says, I have this piece of property, I inherited, I never lived there, I'd like to sell it, mm-hmm. um, I'm not going to come in for closing, that's going to raise a lot of red flags. Okay. Um, and so for powers of attorney in Louisiana, Louisiana, they have to be signed before a notary and two witnesses. Um, and so that can kind of make things a little easier for us with a little less fraud here. That's not the case in all states. But what we have found is that you have a lot of notary fraud too. Oh. In other states, people are just going to say they're a notary. And so mm. we you just need the little stamp, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so we um, have used a vetted company to do our notary work in other states where we can't be. Um, And that notary is um, basically owned by one of the title insurance underwriters so that it's insured. Yeah. The problem with it is that it's expensive because guess what? They're vetted and they're insured. (laughs) So it's going to be more expensive than going down to the Piggly Wiggly and getting somebody to notarize Mm -hmm. your documents. Yeah. And so we get a lot of pushback from people. Well, it's too expensive for me to use this service. I just want to use my own service. Um, But there's a reason that we push it. It's because we're trying to avoid fraud. And I do think that's where we as a Agents need to do a better job of communicating with their clients why this is so important mm-hmm. so that they don't give y'all so much pushback. Mm-hmm. That would be helpful. Yeah, Thank you. That yeah. would be helpful. We'll but I think that's the problem. I am like, as soon as the a wire comes up, I am freaking out and telling my client, these are the rules. But I'm not just putting it as a bold in the bottom of my mm-hmm. email. I am calling them and I'm saying, are you considering a wire? These are the things that may happen. This is what you need to do. Like you have to talk to a human mm-hmm. that we know is the title office. Go in person. Mm-hmm. Ideally, I'd like you to just go in person. Mm-hmm. So a lot of banks um, will require, because of all this fraud, they will require their account holder to physically go into the location in order to wire money, um, at which point they can ask them some questions 
questions about, you know, where this money is going. But I know that like if you have a U.S. bank customer or a Wells Fargo customer. They're not even here. They're not here. They're Mm going to have to go to the nearest branch out of state and get that money wired. So the banks are trying. The title companies Mm -hmm. are trying. I just think that the general population doesn't understand the risk yet. And so that's where a lot of the pushback comes from. Um, So we have had, you know, some potential fraud situations with powers of attorney. And that always makes us very nervous. Another upcoming fraud situation is with payoffs. Um, So we, you know, if a seller has a mortgage, Mm -hmm. we're going to have to pay off that mortgage at closing. And so the process requires us to ask for a loan number. We also have to get them to sign something um, consenting for us to reach out to the mortgage company, the mortgage company to communicate with us about their account. Um, And so once we do that, we send that off and we expect a payoff. But if you have the hacker watching that account, Mm. watching that email transaction, Mm -hmm. then they can easily interject themselves as Wells Fargo and say, Commerce Title, here's the payoff, send it to you. Okay. And so one of the things that we do to combat that, and there is a recent instance with a title company in town who lost some, uh, lost a payoff um, through this. And a lot of them are very good. Sometimes it used to be that the payoffs would come through and you're like, no, this does not at all look like what a Wells Fargo payoff looks like. Right. Right. So it looks like a kindergartner made it. Yeah. But they have gotten very good at matching those payoffs. Um, So what you need to do is either have a, um, a template in your online banking system Mm -hmm. where you know every time I wire to Wells Fargo, this is where it goes. I don't have to put it in over and over again because historically this is where it always goes. And so if those instructions don't match what is in your template, you know you have to start asking some questions or there's Mm -hmm. a problem. Mm -hmm. Um, Or have some sort of payoff bank where you you can refer to it every time to look and see that it matches what you have sent in the past. That makes sense. But that, that is a real problem that's coming up now where they are interjecting themselves as the payoff lender when in fact they are not. Hmm. With the power of attorney situations, and you mentioned how difficult it is to get everybody together in one room, are remote closings, do you see that being a thing in the near future? Are some places doing that? Yes, that train has left the station and it's happening. And Um, and COVID really, it's not really happening here, is it? It's not, and here's why. Um, So... In Louisiana, we have to have the notary and the two witnesses. And uh, there's been a lot of pushback because, you know, as with everything in technology, there's a lot of fear surrounding it. And people feel like, well, we're going to lose our jobs if we don't, you know, Mm -hmm. if we can't do this the way we've always done it. But the security that goes along with those remote online closings is actually far more secure than what we're doing now. Wow. They're not just taking taking a photo ID. Um, They are taking that ID and they're matching it to various. Like a database. Yes. Mm. Yes. Okay. And so it's going to ask like a lot of them have technology that asks five questions. What was the first car you owned? What was the first address you lived at? Things like that. I don't know that I could answer that. I know. I'd be like, oh gosh. (laughs) You know, it's funny you say that. Normally they'll give you like seven questions and you have to get five right or something like that. Okay. 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 All right. But um, those are actually much more secure in terms of what they require. And that is going to happen at some point. There's been legislation presented every year for the last few years and it hasn't passed, but it's being re-altered and resubmitted on an ongoing basis. So at some point, remote online notarization will happen. What do you think about it? I think it's great. I'm all for it. Um, I I think that it would make things more secure. Mm -hmm. Um, It would make things easier for busy people who can't get there. Mm -hmm. Um, You want to close in your pajamas. That's great. Mm -hmm. Um, It's operating in a lot of states. And in most of those states, it's operating pretty well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's kind of nice that it's happening before it comes to us. (laughs) We can see. We can make sure. We we are testing some procedures so that when that happens, it's ready to go. Mm. Um, In Louisiana, you can do remote online notarization, but just not for immovable acts yet. Ah, Mm -hmm. So we um, have licensed ourselves with the Secretary's state as remote online notaries. Our software has just implemented a system where we can do some things that way. And so things that don't require the two witnesses um, or that aren't actual transfers, we're starting to test that out so that we're ready to go once the law allows for it. Okay. That'll be good. Yes. Okay. Let's let's jump to 
navigating difficult closings. <laughs> we'll, we'll end on a real high. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, now you've lost your money and your lines are wrong and we've got so much trouble in title. But the people show up and they're just mad. Well, I mean, how do you handle this? How can agents help you? Like, they're, they're angry. They're trying fist fights. Have you had a fist fight? I personally have not had a fist fight. Those have happened in my office, though. Wow. Right. I have sat through a handful of awkward situations. Yeah. And there's no one else I want conducting that closing than Nikki. Right, right. <laughs> but, like, what do you do? How do you – do you wish that the agents would give you, like, a heads up? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And and a lot of times they will. Um, okay. A lot of times they will call and say – um, my seller just lost her husband and she's very emotional and they've lived in this home for a long time. Um, can you give her some extra care or can she have a separate room or something like that? Okay. Um, or, you know, my seller is a drinker and we really need to do this in the morning before things get out of hand and he doesn't have capacity. So yes, the heads up is always appreciated. Mm. Um, there's a problem, there's some animosity, but I will tell you that nine times out of 10, when buyers and sellers don't get along, um, and they've never met, and then they sit at that table, they the dynamic behave. changes. Yeah. Because does. once you have to look someone in the eye. Yeah, you're not so big and strong. That's right. Mm-hmm. Well, and I feel that's like right. a lot of times emotions get in the way and buyers or sellers develop this picture of what the other person is like. And then when they meet them in person, they realize they were just wrong. It, uh, it really isn't that way. Do you think way. that sometimes the agent's behavior facilitates that incorrect? A hundred percent. I know for a fact. Right? So <laughs> that happens. So a combative agent can create a combative client, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yes. So it is the same thing um, with attorneys and their clients. Um, Your job is to keep the emotion out of it Mm -hmm. in a very kind and respectful way. Um, So yes, she just lost her husband, but this is still a business transaction. And so your job is to keep everything business-like to the extent that you can and keep the emotion out of it. Some people can't help themselves because they're just emotional beings mm-hmm. and they bring that personal mm-hmm. um, level of emotion into the transaction yeah. and those people make it worse instead of better. Right. Mm-hmm. And they don't even realize what they're doing. They don't. Yeah. They mm-hmm. don't. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, for my purposes, I just like, I think if you make every, if you let everyone feel heard, then you're able to, first of all, develop some trust. And once you develop that trust, it's easy to move forward right. and to negotiate, you know, some sort of compromise. Um, but until they feel heard, until they feel like you know what their stance is, whether it's full of emotion or not, you're not going to get anywhere. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had people get up and leave and not come back? Yes. <laughs> then what? <laughs> right. Then what? <laughs> like it gets into like a legal battle? Um, yes. I have had people leave and not come back. Most of those were around the time of Katrina, so Mm -hmm. emotions were extremely high. Mm -hmm. That is a rare instance. Usually, we're able to draw them back to the table, Um, maybe not in the same room. Right. Um, You know, it helps to offer a separate room, especially now that they're embarrassed that they've done this. But (laughs) um, during Katrina, we had a couple of instances, but I chalked that up to just emotions were extremely high, and there was no way to avoid it in those instances. These are big decisions. I have a question for you. In some states, it is not customary for the parties to be in the same room. Do you like everyone in the same room or is it neutral to you or what do you see the benefit of having people in separate rooms? Um, so before 2015, when we had all the best practices changes, um, you remember this, mm-hmm. everyone showed up at the same time yeah. and it was either really great or really terrible. Right. And <laughs> if even if it was really great and everyone was talking, it still was hard to get the buyer to focus it's on signing the documents. It's a lot of work documents. to do, yeah. So after that, when the law required us to provide some financial privacy for that buyer and we started asking the seller to come 20 minutes late, I noticed a lot more efficiency and that it became a lot more pleasant for everyone. Because if you have that first time home buyer, yes, they are excited. Yes, they want to talk about the mailbox and the trash days and all that kind of stuff, but they also want to understand and they're nervous about signing a note right. and a 30-year mortgage. Mm-hmm. So this gives us some time to get them comfortable, make sure they understand mm-hmm. everything. And then by the time the seller comes in, hopefully is it, a, it is a lovely situation mm-hmm. um, where the seller's glad to sell to this buyer and the buyer's delighted to buy from this seller. And so I find that that's kind of the best of both worlds where yeah. we do have that privacy and that time by ourselves with the buyer, but at the same time, they do get to meet. Okay. I used to hate closings. You did? Because 
I didn't like, I well, I don't really like small talk. I'm not the greatest at it. And I'm also just thinking about what's next? What do I have to do? What's in my email? Right. You this know? is not an efficient use of time. Right. It's just, it's hard for me to sit there. And the days before TRID, when sometimes you didn't get the final, I would show up for closing and be like, hey, the oh. lender still hasn't sent the package. Let me tell you how I've many times closings. I didn't go to closing. Oh my God. Closings that lasted for hours while we yeah. were waiting. And right. so mm-hmm. I very much, once TRID started happening and once sellers coming a little bit later started happening, it was just so efficient. So right. much a game more changer. It, it yeah. really has. Huge. I, and I agree. I think it allows the buyer to get the questions asked and understand what they're doing. And then when you step out to go make copies and scan mm-hmm. everything, that is their time to say, when is trash day mm-hmm. and to figure anything out. Right. Well, I will tell you, the two of you are delightful to have in a closing. Um, Alyssa sits there very quietly and Mm -hmm. works on her computer, and it's like she's not even there. Um, And Katie is very pleasant. (laughs) So pleasant. Yes. I'm going to engage all of our friends. Yes. Um, Some agents will come and insert themselves the entire time. And start asking, well, you know, have you told them this? Have you told them that? I'm trying to get You're there. Like, I'm in the middle of my job right now. <laughs> yes, Can you just right. give me a minute like, to get there? Business. Or they'll start asking questions like, well, what are you going to do to the house? Or, you know, when are you moving in? And so it, it's very disruptive uh-huh, um, uh-huh. to the process. But mm-hmm. the two of you are wonderful to work with. Well, thanks. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> when you leave the room, I do close my computer and engage. Okay. I just try to. <laughs> You're like, them. You're just not trying to get in the way. Right. Okay, I let them fair. do their thing. Fair, so. fair. Okay. I think think we're good. Nikki, this was so, so helpful. helpful. It really is a lot to um, take in and understand. And we have a lot of new agents that listen. So I hope that it was helpful for them. Did you bring a toast today? I did. <gasps> oh, oh good. great. Hooray. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yesterday was National Women's Day, right? Yes. Okay. And there are two women in the field of real estate that I feel like need to be toasted. One is Mary Ladner. Okay. Who, I love Mary Ladner. Yes. Mm-hmm. Works with um, Alyssa's company with Ladder and Bloom. And she's been an agent for, I believe, 58 years. <gasps> And just just this year, she did not renew her license. But when she started, there were very, very few female real estate agents. Wow. And she told me this great story where when she was recruited, um, her boss said, I would like you, she was just an office assistant to be an agent. And she said, but there are no women agents. And he said, I don't want a woman. I want a lady. Oh, and you all know Mary Ladner, and she's a very lovely lady who is a very strong lady. Also, she's strong. (laughs) Yes, she is my first toast. My second is Linda Gaspard for very similar reasons. Um, Linda was told that she would never be successful because she had six children, Mm -hmm. and you know, both know Mm -hmm. she's incredibly successful and incredibly strong woman. So, those are my two toasts. Those are great toasts. Okay, cheers to Linda and Mary. Thank you, Nikki. Thank, Thank you for having great. me. It was so a pleasure. Wonderful. Oh, we could talk all day. I know. I had to like rein myself in. Me too. But maybe we'll have a second part. <laughs> okay. All right. Bye, everyone. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Hustle Humbly podcast. Let us know who we should toast to for the next episode. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hustle Humbly Podcast. If you have an episode, topic, or question, please email us at hustlehumblypodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. See you next week. Bye. This is the good life.